A familiar sight at the time of Jesus was a sheepfold. Almost every green hill had a holding yard for sheep. They dotted the countryside all over the hills of Judea and Samaria. The shepherd would bring his flock in at night to shelter the sheep from predators and from the weather. Sometimes the sheepfold was a cave. At other times, it was a walled enclosure made of mud or thorn bushes. Most often, the tall walls around the sheep were stacks of stone. The only way in or out of the sheepfold was a narrow passageway. And in John chapter 10, Jesus uses this common scene from daily life to teach us lessons about his relationship with his followers. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, to scale the wall or to try to dig out underneath the wall was unauthorized entrance. This was the tactic of a rustler. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. It was common for several shepherds to use one fold. One pen would corral multiple flocks. A designated shepherd would spend the night in the doorway to protect the sheep from intruders. And sheep, you see, have acute hearing. They know their shepherd's voice. For in the morning, all the shepherd had to do to separate his flock was to sound out his distinctive call. The sheep would start moving and sorting and start moving toward him. The sheep would separate at the sound of the shepherd's voice. And a Christian should respond to the voice of the Spirit of Jesus in the same way. As a sheep responds to their shepherd, we need to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus says in verse 3, And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Uh, There are memory experts who develop triggers that enable them to go out into a crowd. They'll meet dozens of new people for the first time. And then they'll instantly recall everyone's name. It's an impressive performance if you've ever seen it done. And yet Jesus puts all the memory experts to shame. For he knows billions of believers all by name. Did you know he even knows your name? And his memory is fueled not by clever techniques or triggers, but by the deep, deep love he has for each of us. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You you remember the blind man back in chapter 9? He had never seen Jesus' face, but he recalled his voice. Likewise, a Christian today has never seen Jesus face to face, but we've learned to recognize his voice. Hopefully, you're in the process of learning that. When we walk with him, when we know him, When we learn how he speaks to us, it causes us to recognize his voice quickly. We're told, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, they say the only time sheep follow a stranger is if they're sick, if the sheep are sick. And I think the same is true of Christians. Spiritually healthy sheep 
are attuned to their shepherd. We get distracted when we become sick. I heard of a New York building that caught fire one night. A blind little girl was trapped on the fourth floor. At her particular apartment, there wasn't enough room for the firemen to use their ladders, and so they stretched out a net, and they told her to jump, but she couldn't see the net, and she refused. Just in the nick of time, her father drove up to his burning building. He raced to the base of the building, and he shouted for his little girl to jump, and she did, but it was only because she heard her father's voice. You know, from time to time, a Christian's faith demands that he or she take a leap of faith. And often it's hard because we can't see where our feet are going to land. We too need to learn to trust the Father's voice. Well, verse 6 says, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. You know, sheep aren't very bright, and maybe that's another reason why Jesus compares us to sheep. As a matter of fact, I've got a little video for you. Watch this. The shepherd's saving his sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Until the sheep, the dumb sheep, gets stuck right back in the rut. And I tell you, I hate to admit it, but there have been times when Jesus has gotten me out of one mess just to watch me jump right back into another. We can resemble dumb sheep. Well, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Now, an ancient sheepfold had no doors or gates. The shepherd was its door. His body was the barricade. So that once the sheep were tucked in, the shepherd would then lay over the threshold, and he would stay between the sheep and potential danger. Here Jesus is saying, you'll harm my sheep over my dead body. There's only one entrance into God's sheepfold, and that's to come through Jesus Christ. Jesus tells them, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What a wonderful promise. You know, pastures in Palestine aren't huge, flat, grazing lands like out in Texas. No, most of Israel, especially around Jerusalem, it's rocky terrain. It's mountainous. And there are tiny little pockets of pasture that lie between the steep slopes and the rugged cliffs. Ample supplies of grass are difficult to access, and thus it takes a skilled and caring and experienced shepherd to find pasture for his flock. And likewise, we live in a barren world. Spiritual pasture in this world is tough to come by, but our good shepherd knows our needs, and he's able to satisfy his sheep if we graze where he tells us. And then verse 10, for the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this is Satan's motive for your life. Don't don't think he comes with good things. He tempts you. And you think, oh, he has my best interest in mind. No, he doesn't. 
He wants to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. That's his motive for you. The devil doesn't desire your welfare. He's out to destroy you. Yet Jesus promises, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The original is actually superabundance. Superabundantly. Jesus is saying there's no limit to the blessings that he offers us. You know, once there was an old man, he drove over the Rocky Mountains in a 1946 Ford. The steep grade, man, it took its toll on the old truck. The motor started to overheat. He had to stop several times to let it cool off. The trip was so stressful. He eventually made it, but he didn't enjoy the ride, and he certainly had little interest in the scenery. But later, this same man made another trip over the Rockies, this time in a brand-new Ford F-150 pickup. Boy, the motor purred like a kitten the whole trip, climbed those mountains, hugged the curves as he came down. This time, there was no apprehension. The man's trip was fun. Several times, he just stopped to admire the panoramic views. Now, without Jesus, life is like this man's first trip. With Jesus, life is like his second trip. The terrain doesn't change with or without Jesus. Everyone's life is full of steep stretches and sharp curves but with power under the hood, your life will run better. The challenges remain, but when you're traveling with Jesus, you can enjoy the scenery. There's power under your hood. There's resources that enable you to drive smoothly. For Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. See, a hired hand, a hireling, cares only for a paycheck. He has no investment in the flock. He lacks commitment. And thus he'll split at the first sight of hardship or danger. Whereas the shepherd loves his sheep. The shepherd's willing to sacrifice for his sheep. He'll put himself in harm's way to protect what belongs to him, the sheep. And do you know the term for shepherd in the Latin? Do you know what it is? It's pastor. For a good pastor is like a shepherd. A good pastor, he loves a sheep. <laughs> He's responsible for the sheep. He'll sacrifice for them and even endanger himself to protect them. He's accountable to Jesus for the welfare of the sheep. Yet sadly, too many pastors are nothing but hired hands. You see, they work only for a paycheck, and when the going gets rough, they bolt or they abandon the sheep. You know, some pastors start out wanting to be shepherds. But you know, after you're treated like a hireling for so long, you start to act the part. This is why if a congregation wants a real shepherd, they should let their pastor lead. They need to trust him and treat him like a shepherd, not like a hired hand. Well, Jesus says it again in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own, as the Father knows me, 
Even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. These other sheep to which Jesus refers here are the Gentiles, which would be most of us, who eventually will receive the gospel and become one flock with Jewish believers. Jesus is the one shepherd of both Jews and Gentiles. Black and white, rich and poor, male and female. He has one flock and he brings us together in him. Therefore, my father loves me, he says, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from, of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Realize the crucified Christ was no victim. Jesus was the good shepherd who willingly and voluntarily sacrificed his life for the sheep. It's ironic, but I've heard it said, under the old covenant, the sheep were sacrificed for the shepherd, while under the new covenant, it's the shepherd who becomes a sacrifice for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, became the sacrifice who was sheared, who was slain, so his sheep could be saved. Well, verse 19 sheds light on the discussions that followed the healing of the blind man back in chapter 9. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember that miracle had left the Jews divided over what to make of Jesus. And they debated, was he of God or was he of Satan? Well, verse 22. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, this feast was also called the Festival of Lights. It occurs each year in December. This wasn't one of the seven feasts instituted in the Old Testament, but this was a feast that was added between the Testaments. It commemorated a miracle that God worked after Jewish rebels had liberated Jerusalem and its temple from pagan invaders. God caused a single day's portion of sacred oil to burn for eight days. Hanukkah, as it's called today, is still celebrated by Jews all over the world. The rest of the dialogue here in John chapter 10 occurs during this feast or two and a half months after the healing of the blind man. Verse 23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was the long roof-covered colonnade just south of the temple's holy place. Winter in Jerusalem is usually drizzly, sometimes cold. It was definitely time to put on the thermal robes. I'm sure you know what the Apostle John was wearing at the time. He had on his long johns. His long johns. Solomon's porch provided Jesus a little shelter here from the elements. Well, then the Jews, they surrounded him. They hemmed him in on all sides. They had him cornered. And they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? 
Stop beating around the bush, in other words. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But he had already, hadn't he? You recall back in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus had claimed to be the voice speaking from the burning bush to Moses. He didn't shy away from this question of who he was. He had boldly claimed to be God. Well, here Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This verse always reminds me of the Allstate insurance slogan, you're in good hands. Hey, you're in good hands with Jesus. If Jesus has you in his grasp, no man can pluck you out. Jesus never gets strip sacked. Never does. He never fumbles what's in his hands. He holds on to it. Notice too, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Then he says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. It's as if Jesus' hands and the Father's hands are the same hands, and they are. He leaves no doubt about this in verse 30. For here he utters what was a shocker to all who must have heard it at the time. He says, I and my Father are one. Hey, the Jews wanted it straight. Well, this is as straight and as clear as it gets. The Father and the Son are two persons, but they are one substance. They are one. The Bible reveals that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God's plural nature was clearly taught. As far back as the creation, God had said, let us make man in our image. The one true God had spoken of himself by using plural pronouns. And yet the Jews failed to recognize the triune nature of God. They didn't grasp his sonship. And thus, when Jesus claimed to be God, they felt that he was guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? In other words, Jesus wants to know, what have I done to deserve to be executed? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. See, the Jews were blind to the Old Testament revelation that Messiah would be the God-man, that he would be fully divine, but also fully human. And this is why Jesus takes them back to Scripture. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Now here Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. 
Remember that, Psalm 82, verse 6. He continues, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and notice the parentheses, and the scripture cannot be broken. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus obviously believed in the authority and reliability of the Bible. He says adamantly here, the scripture cannot be broken. Ignore it if you want, attack it, deny it, refute it if you try, but the Bible eventually either wears you down or wins you over. The Bible is immutable. It's infallible. It's been said the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. And yet, why beat on the Bible like an anvil? Why not use it as a foundation? Why not build on what can't be broken? And it'll last forever. The Bible is a solid rock. Well, back to verse 35. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, in the verse that Jesus quotes, Psalm 82, verse 1, God was rebuking Israel's judges. The next verse in Psalm 82 implies implies that. It says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In the context of Psalm 82, these judges were clearly human beings. And yet they're called gods with a little g because they represented the one God with the capital G. These men were gods only in the sense of standing in God's place and issuing God's verdict. And thus Jesus is basically saying, if the psalmist ascribed the term God's little g to wicked men, then why is it wrong when the real son of God uses the term God to describe himself? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I mention this and make a big deal of this because there are some cults that take chapter 10, verse 35, out of context to justify the deification of believers, that humans can become gods in the same way that God is God. That's a gross misinterpretation of this passage. See, if you're a little g God in the Psalm 82 or John 10 sense, You're a wicked judge. That's what you are. And you're in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Remember the cultist coffee cup. It reads, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. In verse 37, Jesus continues, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Don't just listen to my words. Examine my works. Jesus made claims the Jews saw as blasphemous, but had those claims not been validated by his works? Certainly they had. His works backed up his words and proved that he was God. Yet verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him, But he escaped out of their hand, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, 
But all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Apparently, the location reminded folks of John's testimony of Jesus. Now they could see that what John had said about him was true. Now, Jesus has just challenged his critics to examine his works by his, or his words by his works. And in chapter 11, Jesus does one of his greatest works. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Jewish pilgrims would pass through Bethany as they went up to Jerusalem. And it was that Mary had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, here John identifies this family by referring to an event that he hasn't written about yet, but he will. In chapter 12, he'll show that this desperate and doubting Mary is going to be transformed into a worshiper. Well, therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And I like how they say that. Notice they don't say, he who loves you. Though I'm sure Lazarus did love Jesus, but the women say, he whom you love. You know, this is the real distinctive trait about a Christian. It's not that we love God. Who wouldn't love God? God is so lovable. No, the amazing thing is that we are those that God has loved. That God loves us. Well, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This was also what Jesus said about the man born blind. Jesus doesn't cause suffering, but he uses tragedies to showcase his glory, and that's what he's about to do here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, who was Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Wait a minute. Is this any way for Jesus to show someone he loves them? A friend is sick, and it's within Jesus' power to do something about it, and yet he drags his feet to respond? Is that telling someone you love them? Realize, human love and God's love act very different. They do. Human love coddles. Oh, it rushes in to alleviate any twinge of suffering. It wants to make someone's way easier. It's a pampering love. But God's love is a perfecting love. God doesn't shelter us from difficulties. He forces us to face life head on. See, faith doesn't get stretched without some tension. Character isn't forged except through struggle. Courage doesn't grow apart from challenge. Conviction doesn't crystallize unless there's pressure. Jesus has lessons to teach those he loves. And that's why he waits. Then after this, he said to the disciples, 
let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Notice Jesus wasn't afraid of any circumstances. As long as he was walking in God's light, he wouldn't stumble. If it was God's will for him to visit Bethany, then God would guard him. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. <laughs> you know, they, they figured Lazarus was just deal. He can sleep it off, Lord. Get, just get some rest. He'll be fine. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, ah, Lazarus is dead. Now, in both the Bible and even in secular literature, Sleep is often used as an idiom for death. You recall when Jesus entered Jairus' house. There he told the mourners, this girl is not dead, just sleeping. Of course, the Jews laughed, remember. She had no pulse. She was cold. She was blue. Her eyes had rolled back in her head. Just sleeping? Are you kidding? But Jesus knew the girl's condition was temporary. Realize sleep is a fitting analogy for death. For in both sleep and death, the body suspends activity while the inner man stays active. As the poet put it, sleep is but a short death. Death is but a longer sleep. The resurrection will be the last wake-up call where every body gets a new body fit for either eternal life or eternal damnation. Sleep was also a popular analogy for death among early Christians. You know, believers referred to the grave as, quote, resting houses. Our English word cemetery, do you know what it means? It means sleeping place. See, the grave has a door on the inner side. And Jesus is going to use this occasion to prove that point. Verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Going to get a lesson in faith here. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) This was doubting Thomas living up to his nickname. Certainly, Thomas was devoted. Nobody can question that. I mean, he's ready to die for Jesus' sake. He's the sailor willing to go down with the ship. But he lacks faith, doesn't he? He's the ultimate pessimist. Did you hear about the optimist that took the pessimist duck hunting? He wanted to show off his new hound dog. The guy, he takes one look at the dog and he shrugs. He said, it looks like a mutt to me. But pretty soon, a flock of geese, they fly overhead. Bam, bam. Two fall right in the middle of the lake. All of a sudden, the hound dog, he goes running over the top of the water. Runs right out across the top of the water. Grabs the two duck 
in his mouth and comes back over the surface of the water. Amazing. The optimist sticks out his chest and he asks his friend, he says, now what do you think of my dog now? The pessimist said, your dumb dog doesn't even know how to swim. That was Thomas. His cup was always half empty rather than half full. You know, it's interesting. Thomas is called the twin. Apparently, he had a sibling just like him. And I wonder if he or she is here this morning. I wonder if his twin is you. How negative are you? Do you awake and greet the day? Good Lord, it's morning. Or do you say, good morning, Lord. Travel with Jesus and there's always a bright side. Don't be a doubter. Don't be a Thomas. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Remember Jesus' promise to the messenger four days earlier that this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God? Now that seemed like a wishful thought. Lazarus was no longer just sick. Now he's dead as a doorknob. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's accusing Jesus of a missed opportunity. Martha has a strong faith, no doubt about that. She had no question that Jesus, had, if he had come in time, he could have saved her brother's life, but he delayed. See, Martha is about to learn that Jesus never misses an opportunity. He just has his own timetable. Martha's faith was strong, but it was struggling. She wants to believe that Jesus can still perform a miracle, but this is no longer an illness. A feeble fever. No, the king of death has choked the life out of her brother. Martha believes in healing. She's seen Jesus handle fevers. But is her faith big enough, brave enough, bold enough to tackle the grim reaper? She says to Jesus, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, Oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now this is why you've come this morning. To hear what I'm about to say next. Realize, Martha believed in a doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. That's good. That our bodies will one day live. She had correct theology. But did she actually believe in Jesus? 
See, she makes a statement of faith in verse 24. But real faith is more than words. It's more than a creed. It's more than a statement. You can believe in the right doctrines and quote the correct creeds, but when was the last time the power behind the doctrine jumped off the page and got a hold of your mind and your heart and your hands? Like Martha, you believe in the resurrection. Oh, one day, yet future, doctrinally, you believe in the resurrection. But right now, do you believe that Jesus can resurrect a dead joy or a dead dream or a dead marriage or a dead ministry? You believe that Jesus created the heavens and the earth, but what about his creative power in the hopeless situation you face today? Do you believe in him? When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he was taking a truth off the page and putting it in a person. He plucks truth out of the realm of doctrine and he inserts it into the realm of relationship. He moves it from the future to the present. Real faith is more than a matter of fact assertion or declaration. It's reliance on a friend. Do you trust Jesus in your life? Jesus asked Martha and us, do you believe me? Not just the things that are said about me, but do you believe me? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha tries to sidestep Jesus' real question. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Oh, like Martha's, Mary's faith is also struggling. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The phrase means a deep-seated anger, more than just disappointed. Jesus is mad here. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 35 is a monumental moment. This is the day God cried. But why did God cry? What made God cry? Well, there were various theories from the beginning. Notice, then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I mean, some people thought Jesus was grieving a loved one when he cried. Others thought he was upset that he had arrived late, too late. But neither reason is why he cried. Jesus wept, not because of what death had done to the person inside the tomb, 
but because of what it had done to his followers outside the tomb. They had let the grim reaper waltz right into their lives and strip them of what they held precious. Rip off their joy and their faith. They had handed over their hope and happiness without even a struggle. It was a pathetic scene. Enough to make you cry. Enough to make God cry. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And I like the old King James here. You can't beat it. Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. The corpse reeked with rigor mortis. Now, superstitious Jews believed a dead person's spirit would hover over their body for three days. But once the body had deteriorated beyond a certain point, it gave up any hope of returning. By day four, all hope had been abandoned. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it's been pointed out that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, every corpse in every graveyard would have come bounding from the tomb. Now realize, though this was Lazarus' first funeral, it would not be his last. He was resurrected, but he would die again. Yet in light of what happened this day, I'm sure that his second funeral was much different. For no one present at this miracle ever saw death the same. From now on, it would be viewed as transitional, not final. As birth, not burial. As a promotion, not a loss. As a gladness, not a sadness. And Jesus worked this miracle so that we could see death the same way. With hope and through faith. Here, Jesus takes the sting out of death. And then verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. (laughs) And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Notice Lazarus was alive, but still bound. He had new life, but he still wore grave clothes. And this is the predicament of every believer. We are resurrected spiritually when we come to Christ. We are recipients of new life. The problem, though, is that the attitudes and the habits and the thought patterns of the past remain. We still carry them. We are still wearing our grave clothes. And notice, though Jesus gave Lazarus new life, he always is the one who gives new life. Jesus didn't free Lazarus from his shroud. This wasn't Jesus' job. 
Notice he assigns that responsibility to Lazarus' friends. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And today, it is the church's job, our job, to help each other as new believers shake free from our bondage. Jesus has set us free. Jesus has made us alive. Our role now is to help each other see ourselves in Christ and shed our sinful habits and renew our minds. We need to help our fellow believers. They need to help us swap grave clothes or grace clothes. And then verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Trying to discredit Jesus' miracles had become a full-time job for these jealous Jews. Damage control was getting more difficult. For this man works many signs. Remember, everyone Jesus healed succumbed to illness later. Everyone he raised from the dead died a second time. Nobody's still alive. Jesus' miracles weren't intended to close hospitals. They weren't intended to end the funeral business. His power revealed his identity, and it illustrated his promises. And we're still learning from it today. Well, the chapter ends by giving us a glimpse of what was going on at the time behind closed doors within priestly politics. In verse 48, they deliberate. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now realize the Jewish aristocracy had a deal with the Romans. It was probably an unspoken deal but an agreement nonetheless. Rome would prop up the Jews as long as the Jewish hierarchy did their bidding and helped keep the peace. Jewish cooperation was rewarded with power and profits. And yet Jesus had become a threat to this arrangement. He couldn't be controlled. Jesus was shaking up the status quo, and it scared the Jews. They could possibly lose their power. And one of the Jews, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And here his words are an accidental prophecy. For John writes this about them. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, Caiaphas was a wicked man. He was pronouncing a death sentence. You know, he was saying that Jesus needs to take one for the team. This one man needs to die so we can maintain our status quo. But God used the high priest to prophesy our salvation, that because of one man's death, We all could be saved. It's ironic the Jews put Jesus to death to save their own skin. In reality, he was saving the world. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. 
By this time, he knew their plans. But went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. It seems the chief priests had gone so far as to put a bounty on Jesus' head. It's sad that one of his own disciples would be the person to collect. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Chapter 12.